you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 54 to the end of the chapter to verse 60. So Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. Famous passage today of the stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54, please hear this public reading of God's word. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your faithfulness to our church for five years. As Mark was talking, it was moving to hear all of the things that have happened at our church. And so we are very grateful uh, for your faithfulness to our church, for the conversions, for the spiritual growth, and so much more. And Father, as we come today to a familiar passage, the stoning of Stephen, Father, I pray that we would draw strength from Stephen's example from his life, from his, his last few moments of his life. I pray that we would be strengthened by his example, by his love, and I pray that you would teach us from Stephen uh, lots of things, and I think there are lots that we can learn, so I pray that we will learn from Stephen and be inspired by him. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the first Christian martyr in the history of the church, a familiar passage, Stoning of Stephen. Uh, We were supposed to look at this a couple of weeks ago, but Liliana and I got sick, and so we were quarantining, and so we had to, I had to hold on to this passage a little bit longer than I normally would have held on to a passage, but this passage has been good for me personally to to look at this and to study uh, Stephen's life. Uh, I told Jerry on the phone yesterday that I feel like I love Stephen that much more, having studied these last few moments of his life. I really feel like I really love this brother in Christ, and I hope that we will come away from today with a greater love for Stephen. But let me give you my outline for my sermon is going to be six things that Stephen teaches us in the final few moments of his life. So six things that we can learn from Stephen. It's the outline of my message. The first thing that we learn from him is found in verse 54, which says this, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So here's the first thing that Stephen teaches us is that we will have enemies in this life. We're going to have enemies In this life, the Apostle Paul famously says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we are going to face opposition to our message. There are going to be people who oppose our message. Now let's look back at verse 54 and looking at it, saying that Stephen teaches us that we're going to have enemies. Verse 54 again, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. So they're enraged, they're grinding their teeth at him. This is not just ordinary anger. 
not run-of-the-mill anger. This is describing anger that is absolutely out of control. This anger has built and built and built up to this sort of fever pitch, and it's about to explode in physical violence against Stephen. So they are enraged. They are grinding their teeth at him. This is anger that's out of control. Now the question is, why? Why are they so angry at Stephen? Well, I think they're angry at him for two reasons, and ultimately I think they kill him for a third reason, but they're angry at him for two reasons. Number one, they're angry at him because he spoke boldly to them. He spoke boldly to them. Now, we must remember his face was shining like the face of an angel, so he spoke lovingly to them, but he spoke boldly. He spoke directly. His words pierced into them, and instead of bringing repentance, his words brought anger and rage. So he spoke boldly, but he spoke lovingly. He spoke boldly directly to them. The second reason why they hated him is because he spoke of their sinfulness. He spoke of their sin, and they hated the fact that he talked about their sin. So we must tell others about their sin, and we must speak boldly. We must speak lovingly. But when we tell others of their sin, some people are going to oppose us when we talk about their sin. They're not going to like it when we talk about their sin. But ultimately, I think they killed Stephen because he spoke of the Son of Man. I think that's why they killed him. He spoke of the Savior, and we must speak of the Savior. When we tell others that Jesus is the only way to God, people are going to oppose us when we say that. Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You remember that Paul had been whipped with lashes. He'd received five times the 40 lashes minus one, so 30 time, 39 times times five is 195 times he'd been lashed in his back. So if he would have gone, if he would have gone to the beach with Paul, I think Marcus said this before, and he took off his shirt, his back would have been a complete mess. He would have had scars all over his back. He bears in his body the marks of Jesus. And I remember John Gershner, who was R.C. Sproul's sort of mentor, was speaking on this verse in Galatians 6, and he said, I don't have any physical scars on my body, but he said, I think he said this, he said, I have verbal scars from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. He had been opposed in academic settings. People had mocked him and made fun of him over and over and over again because of his Christian faith. So the first thing that Stephen teaches us is that we're going to have enemies in this life. Now, look at verse 55. What does Stephen do? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, R.C. Sproul said if he had a mob that was in front of him that was so angry at him that they were grinding their teeth in anger at him, he said, I wouldn't have been able to keep my eyes off of them, except, he said, I would have glanced around really quick to find my escape route. So R.C. Sproul is just locking eyes. I'm not leaving them. But Stephen doesn't do that. What does Stephen do? Stephen lifts his gaze. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. So here's the second thing that Stephen teaches us. He teaches us not to fixate on the trials in front of us, but we should lift our eyes to heaven. You see, Stephen takes his eyes off his circumstances and he lifts them to heaven. So that's the first thing we want to do in a tough situation is get our eyes off this difficult situation and look up. Now, it is so tempting in the middle of a trial or in the middle of suffering or in the middle of a difficulty, it is so tempting to fixate on the trial in front of us. And we just stare at the trial and we stare at the trial and this trial begins to fill our gaze. It begins to cloud our vision. And what happens when we do that, when we fixate on the trial? Worry and fear and anxiety come flooding into our souls when we fixate on the trial. So we must not fixate on the trial. We must lift our gaze to heaven. We must turn to the Word of God. We must turn to the promises of God. We must turn to the throne of grace in the middle of trials. 
Now, as I thought about this, I thought about people in church history who have done this well, who have not fixated on trials, but they have turned to God. And I thought of three different people. One is a well-known Christian who was just filled with faith and trust in God. And whenever he faced difficult circumstances, here's one, for example, he was in a difficult circumstance. He said something like this. He said, my eyes are not on this situation. My eyes are on the living God who controls every situation of my life. You see, he, he took his eyes off his trial. I'm not fixating on this. I am fixating on God who controls every situation of my life. Second example, another well-known Christian who faced violent opposition to the gospel message. He was in sort of near-death situations trying to get the gospel out. And in these near-death situations, he said, life in such circumstances caused me to cling very near the Savior. You see, he didn't fixate on these difficult situations in front of him. These difficult situations forced him, pushed him to cling to the Savior. Then what happened to him? He said, calmness, peace, and serenity abode my soul. Rather than worry and fear anxiety, he clung to the Savior, and calmness, peace, and serenity began to abide in his soul. The third example, another well-known Christian who lost her husband at a young age, and she was left uh, a single mom and a widow, and she's on the mission field in her 20s, And she said this, as I went about my work in the house and on the mission station, I found peace as I looked up to the Father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift. Now she said, was I lonely? Yes, I was terribly lonely. She said, did I grieve? I grieved most sorely, but I had peace, not like the world gives. I had peace that passes understanding. Why? Because she looked up away from her trial to her heavenly Father from whom comes every good and perfect gift gift. So that's the second thing he teaches us is that we must lift our gaze to heaven when we face trials. Now, what does Stephen see when he looks to heaven? Again, verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He looks up and he gets this incredible vision. God graciously gives Stephen this extraordinary vision, this hope-filled vision, this uh, soul-strengthening vision, joy-inducing vision. He gets this wonderful vision. He sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, if we were reading through this passage quickly, we would miss something right here. Let Let me read it again. Verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If we slowed down, we would say, wait a minute, why is Jesus standing right here? Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. We would say, wait a minute, why is Jesus standing? And you say, well, what's the big deal? Why is Jesus standing? Why is that even a big deal? Well, here's some verses from Hebrews and see if there's a difference from these verses and this picture of Jesus in Acts 7. Here's some verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 8.1 says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Or Hebrews 12, 2, famous verse, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or Jesus in the Gospels, one example, Mark 14, verse 62, he said, Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. This is the common language of the Bible is that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. He is seated at the right hand of God. Then why is Jesus standing in Acts chapter 7 if the common language is that he has sat down? Well, I think he's standing for at least three reasons why he's standing. 
three reasons, are typically, or maybe more than three reasons are given, but I think three reasons are probably true as to why Jesus is standing. Let me give you two of those reasons now, and I'll try to remember to come back to one at the end. So the first two reasons why Jesus is standing, number one, Jesus stands up because he actively sympathizes with his suffering witness. The man of sorrows is alive and sympathizes with his people still. Though raised to the throne of glory, he is not forgetful of our shame and sorrow. See, Jesus is activated in the care of his suffering servant, so he rises out of sympathy for Stephen. That's the first reason why Jesus is standing. But the second reason, this is my favorite of the three reasons, Jesus stands because he's getting ready to welcome Stephen home. Isn't that wonderful? He rises up because he's getting ready to wrap his arms around Stephen. He's getting ready to tell Stephen, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So he rises up to get ready to welcome this suffering servant home, to get ready to welcome the first martyr home. Now, multiple pastors that I read or listened to mention this in their sermons. Now, this is these guys. This is not me, but this is what they said. They said various people throughout church history apparently have gotten some kind of glimpse of the heavenly glory before they die. Now, Charles Spurgeon said this. James Boyce said this. Here's what what James Boyce said. My own great-grandfather died that way, reacting in astonishment to what he saw of the heavenly glory as he died. So James Boyce said his great-grandfather apparently, according to Boyce, got a glimpse of the heavenly glory, and he reacted with astonishment right before he died. Martin Lloyd-Jones also told a story. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones is not known for telling stories in his sermons, believe me. And I was listening to this sermon of his on Acts 7, and all of a sudden he started telling a story. I said, oh my goodness, he's telling a story. I'm going to lean in and listen to this story. So he started telling a story about a man, and this is what he said. This man lived one of the blackest, vilest lives one could possibly live. He was a drunkard. He was an adulterer. He was an exceedingly violent man, and he was converted at age 77. Now, Miss Dorothy has him beat, 88, but still 77 is pretty impressive. This man was genuinely converted after this exceedingly violent life, genuinely converted. And I'm not sure how much after his conversion, but it was probably not very long after his conversion, he was on his deathbed, and Lloyd-Jones was invited to come and see this man. And Lloyd-Jones is sitting next to this man. And this is what Lloyd-Jones said. This man's face was scarred. He had scars all over his face because of all the fights he'd been in in his life. But then Lloyd-Jones said, all of a sudden, this man's face began to radiate with joy. He began to radiate with joy. He said, all of a sudden, he shot up in the bed. He put his arms out like this, and then he fell back dead. Now, this is Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones believes that this man got a glimpse of the heavenly glory. Lloyd-Jones believes that he saw Jesus rising to welcome him home, and that's why he put his arms out. Now, did James Boyce's great-grandfather really get a glimpse of the heavenly glory before he died? I don't know for sure. Did this man that Lloyd-Jones was standing next to really get a glimpse of the heavenly glory? I don't know for sure, but this much we know for sure. Stephen got a glimpse of the heavenly glory before he died. He saw Jesus rise to welcome him home. Now, will we get a vision of the heavenly glory before we die? I doubt it, but I'm not, we, we may, but I doubt we'll get a vision. But here's the third thing that Stephen teaches us. He teaches us that we as Christians, when we die, we will see the risen Christ and he will rise to welcome us home. If we as genuine Christians die this afternoon, we will see the risen Christ. He will rise to welcome us home. He will embrace us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We know that for sure on the authority of the word of God. We should live in light of that day. And I'll try to come back to this third point at the end. So how does Stephen respond to this 
vision. Verse 56, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is completely overcome. He's overwhelmed by this vision that God graciously gives to him. He cannot hold the wonder in. He bursts forth and exclaims, Behold, he says to his enemies, Guys, you got to see this. you got to see what I am seeing. I see the glory of God. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is filled with joy unspeakable at the sight of this vision. One pastor said, and Stephen is saying, do you see whatever may be happening to me, whatever may happen to my body? I see another world, and it's as real and in some ways more real than this one. I see the Son of Man. I see my Savior and my conqueror and my King, and He is rising to meet me. He is so overwhelmed with the eternal life that is opened up to him that he doesn't even seem to care at all about these men gnashing their teeth at him. One pastor said, the teeth of the men that were being gnashed at him were not worthy to be compared with the blessed vision that Stephen enjoyed as he looked up into heaven. Not worthy to be compared with this vision. Doesn't that remind you of Romans 8.18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Charles Spurgeon, who was very helpful in his sermons on Acts 7, I'm going to borrow from him multiple times today, but one of the things he said, he talked about this vision that Stephen got, and he said, do we know how Stephen actually saw this vision? Did he see them with his own two eyes? We don't know for sure, but here's what Spurgeon was getting at. He said, it doesn't really matter how Stephen saw this vision. He said that we can, with the eyes of faith, look and behold Jesus at the right hand of God. He said, this day our soul's eyes may see Jesus and our souls may receive the same joy and gladness out of the sight of Christ. So here's the fourth thing that Stephen teaches us. He teaches us that we should regularly with the eyes of faith behold the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. We should behold Jesus at the right hand of God with the eyes of faith. Now why should we do this regularly? Well, Spurgeon, as many of you know, dealt with a lot of depression In his life, he went through periods of deep, dark depression. And in one of his sermons on Acts 7, he talked about that. He said there were times where he was so depressed in his life, he said nothing seemed to bring him any relief at all. He was so depressed, nothing would help. He said, but it was always this doctrine of Jesus at the right hand of God. He said this doctrine would always bring an infusion of joy. Every time he would consider this doctrine, joy would come surging into his life. It would be a verse, he said, like Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And he would begin to think of Jesus being exalted. He said, it doesn't matter what people say about Spurgeon. Who cares what happens to the name of Spurgeon? He said, as long as the name of Jesus is exalted. And he would think of Jesus at the right hand of God. He would think Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. He is in complete control of the situation that I'm in. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. Then he would think about Jesus interceding at the right hand of God. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. And he would think about Jesus interceding for him in his depression. And he would be strengthened and joy would begin to come into him. Now, why else should we think of Jesus at the right hand of God? Well, I think we actually know the answer to this. We have sung about this many times at our church in a song called Before the Throne of God. Above, we know the line, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, we know this by experience. When we have sinned yet again in the same area and we're feeling down about our sin, we're feeling the weight of that sin, and Satan comes to us and he whispers in our ear and says, how could you fall into that sin again? How could you lose your temper again with your children? How could you lose your temper with that same coworker? How could you give in to that piece of gossip? How could you hold on to that prideful thought? How could you give in to that lustful glance? And when you're feeling the weight of that sin, what do we do? 
Well, the song says, upward I look with the eyes of faith. We look up and we see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, we go with the eyes of faith and we see our sinless Savior. We remind ourselves of gospel truth and the gospel begins to wash over us. Joy begins to flood the soul and we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. So we must go with the eyes of faith and see Jesus, the right hand of God. And we will find the same joy and strength that Stephen found when he saw this vision. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They plugged their ears. They begin to act like little children. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They plugged their ears. Now in Acts 7 verse 51, Stephen in his speech says this in Acts 7 51. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. So he said they were uncircumcised in heart and ears, and that statement is proved true. They are uncircumcised in heart and ears. They refuse to listen to Stephen. They plugged their ears, acting like little children, and they rushed together at him. One commentator said they rushed at him like beast upon prey, a bunch of wild animals attacking their prey. They snatched Stephen up. They're in a rage. Verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The picture we have here is of an angry mob pelting Stephen with stones. Now, why did they take off their garments? It says the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why are they getting rid of their garments? Well, they're taking off their robes, you see, because they don't want to be hindered with throwing these stones. They want to let these stones really fly. They want to kill Stephen. They're in such a rage that they just want to let their fury out. They want to let these stones go as hard as they can with greater accuracy and with greater force. One commentator said the executioners divest themselves in order to perform their gruesome function more easily. And notice that they lay their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul into verse 58 there. Saul was complicit in his godless act. This is the first we find of the Apostle Paul in all of history. And we are introduced to him as part of a murderous mob. There's the Apostle Paul as we're introduced to him as part of a murderous mob. One pastor said, you can picture Saul with his arms crossed. They're laying their garments at Saul's feet. And you can sort of picture him thinking to himself something like this. Yes, kill the heretic. Crush Stephen harder. Kill him. He must die. Saul approves of this execution. That's what Acts 8, 1, the beginning of Acts 8, 1 says, and Saul approved of his execution. Now we must think about Stephen, and we must think about for a second how horrible this must be. In order to understand the force of the end of this passage, I feel like we must picture Stephen dying. It's a horrible way to be executed. One stone at a time are being wizened, and we must think of Stephen with stones flying past him, grazing him, crushing him. It's a horrible way to be killed. How does he respond to these stoning? Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen prays in this moment. One pastor said, Christians at the hour of death and in trial should be about the work of prayer. Yes, indeed, we should be. But here's the the fifth thing that Stephen teaches us. 
right here is that everyone must be prepared to die, and Stephen shows us how to die well. Everyone must be prepared to die, and Stephen shows us how to die well. One writer said, we ought to learn from this chapter how fleeting life is. Doubtless, when the church appointed Stephen to leadership, he anticipated many fruitful years, perhaps even decades, to serve the Lord. In the providence of God, his life ended a short time later. Every day is a gift from God, and we should use it as such. I talked about this a few weeks ago in confession. Every day is a gift from God. We should never take a day for granted. Every day is a gift. One of the conclusions of that would be that we should enjoy life with loved ones today because we could be gone tomorrow or they could be gone tomorrow. So are we enjoying life today as a gift with loved ones? Are we taking days for granted? Every day is a gift. We should view it as such. But Stephen teaches us that everyone must be prepared to die. Now, if Jesus doesn't return first, all of us in this room, all listening online, and to the youngest child in the nursery over there, all of us are going to die. And we must be prepared to die. We must be prepared to face death. Well, Stephen shows us how to die well. And I'm borrowing this from, from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, said this, remember Jesus on the cross, when Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, Spurgeon said, you see, Jesus could approach God the Father directly because Jesus didn't need a mediator. Jesus was the mediator. He can approach God directly. But Stephen needs a mediator. So Stephen says again, verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He needs a mediator. He, he approaches Jesus. And Spurgeon said this, we don't find Stephen saying anything about the powerful sermons he'd preached in his life. We don't find him saying a single word about his good works. We don't find him saying anything about the miracles he's performed. We don't find him saying anything about how he'd served the poor with his life. No, Spurgeon said he invoked the Lord Jesus and leaned on Jesus wholly. Stephen leaned on Jesus completely, fully. Again, Spurgeon says, Ah, brethren, it is well to live and to die, resting wholly upon Jesus. If you lie down tonight and quietly think of your departure and inquire whether you are ready to die, if we sit down tonight and we think, Am I really ready to die? Am I really ready to face God? Spurgeon says, You will not feel at your ease Till your heart stands at the foot of the cross. Looking up and viewing this flowing of the Savior's precious blood, believing humbly that he made your peace with God, there is no right living or joyful dying except in invoking Christ. We take our guilty soul and place it in the dear pierced hand of him who is able to keep it. And then we feel assured that all is safe. The day's work is done with Jesus seen, invoked, and trusted. It is sweet to die. It is sweet to die when we are resting fully on Jesus. Let's see if I can tell a quick story to try to help illustrate this point that Spurgeon's making. This is a story from my own life, but I think it illustrates what Spurgeon's getting at. This story happened almost 11 years ago, uh, almost exactly. It was, I think, March of 2010. It was about a month before Liliana and I got married in April of 2010, so it was about a month before we got married. So almost 11 years ago exactly, I was living a couple hours away from Athens area, and I'd come home on a Friday to see my parents. It was about two o'clock. I'd gotten home to see my parents. They live in Watkinsville, and I got there, and if you know my mom, my mom walks all the time. She's been walking for years. She does like three miles a day, so she was going to go for a walk, and I decided I'd go with her. We're walking in the neighborhood. We walk down the hill. We walk up the hill, and all of a sudden, I couldn't breathe. I'm getting shortness of breath. It's never happened in my life before. Like, this is very strange. I'm having a very hard time even walking, and I just told my mom, 
I can't even breathe. I'm having shortness of breath. So she stopped us. We turned around. We went very slowly back to the house. She's very nervous about the situation. She said, I need to go to the doctor right away. Call, got an appointment. There's a doctor's office right down the street from my parents' house. So went over there and just like 30 minutes later, went to the doctor. They called me back. I explained the situation. I got shortness of breath, had a hard time breathing. So immediately he said, I I need to take an x-ray of your chest. They took me into this little bitty x-ray room. I can remember this like it was yesterday. I can, I can see it in my, in my mind. I can see this little bit of x-ray room. They take the x-ray, and he said, he said this. He said, we're going to run and check the x-ray. We want to see if something is seriously wrong with you, and we'll be right back. So they, they left me in there. So I'm, I'm alone for just a few minutes, and uh, I, can, I can guarantee you that I was not thinking about anything trivial in those few minutes. This is what was going, going through my, my mind. I'm thinking, if something is seriously wrong, I could be face-to-face God, I'm just thinking, that's what's going through my mind. You may be thinking, you're, you're being dramatic. Well, maybe I was, but that's what was going on. I'm thinking, if something is really seriously wrong, I will be standing before God soon. And what do you do in a, in a moment like that? You've got a couple of minutes. Like I, This is the other thing I would say. It's one thing to think that you're going to die one day. It's a totally different thing to think that death is perhaps drawing near. Totally different thing. So I'm thinking death is perhaps drawing near. What do you do? Well, I prayed. And I prayed a very simple prayer. And I think I remember exactly what I, what I said to, to this day. Very simple prayer. In this little room, it's dark in this room, and I, I said this. I said, Lord, I am trusting the blood of Jesus for my justification. That was my prayer. Lord, I am trusting the blood of Jesus for my justification. You see, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The only way that we're going to die well is by resting on the finished work of Jesus. That's it. So if you think, or if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not really ready to die, This is what I would say. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has lived the perfect life that we could never live. He's died, condemned in our place. He took on sin. He became sin for us. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, and he ultimately ascended to the right hand of God. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and the offer of salvation is this, that we will just turn from sin and rest wholly, completely with repentance and faith on Jesus. We can be forgiven and have new life in him, and then we will be ready to die well by resting on the finished work of Jesus. Now, let me just finish my, my story. I don't want to leave the cliffhanger there. They came back with the x-ray and said everything looked normal. They examined me some more, asked me some more questions. Ultimately, they prescribed an uh, inhaler for me. I don't think I ever needed the inhaler. This is, I don't even have one to this day. This is what I think happened that day. I think God brought a tiny, brief little trial into my life. He was trying to enforce upon me two things, at least two things. Number one, he was reminding me about death. Number two, He was reminding me of the preciousness of the blood of Jesus that covers all my sins. All right, verse 60. And falling to his knees, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is an incredible, powerful part of the passage. Again, we must picture this scene here of Stephen being stoned to death. Stones are whizzing past him, are crushing him. This is the final moment of his life. 
He takes whatever energy he has left. He falls to his knees, and then this is his final breath in his lungs. He takes this huge breath, and he bellows out as loud as he can this prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He, he wants his executioners to hear him. So here's the sixth thing that Stephen teaches us. goes back with the first one. We're going to have enemies, but here's the sixth one. We must love our enemies. And one of the ways we love our enemies is by praying for them. Stephen desperately wanted his tormentors to receive mercy. This is a profound act of love from Stephen. Here's Stephen, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and he appeals to Christ to extend mercy to his enemies. He prays that they would be spared the judgment that would surely come upon them if they remained impenitent and in their sins. Now again, to quote Spurgeon here, Spurgeon was so good here. Here's what Spurgeon said about this prayer of Stephen. The prayer we have just mentioned did not die in the air outside Jerusalem's gate. It passed through the gate of pearl, it reached the heart of God, and it obtained an answer. See that eager, impetus young man yonder. The clothes of the witnesses are laid down at his feet. He desires to have a prominent part in stoning the hated Stephen. He is one of the most fiery, and he is glad to see the heretic die. Mark that young man well, for Stephen's prayer is meant for him, though he knows it not. That man is Saul, who becomes Paul. St. Augustine apparently said the church owes the conversion of the apostle Paul to the prayer of Stephen. What an amazing prayer there that Stephen prays, and it is answered at least from one person is converted. And Spurgeon said, Stephen and Saul, they're both in heaven now. He said, I wonder how they felt when they first met there. What joy they must have had. Stephen to see Saul and Saul to see Stephen. The joy of meeting there must have been exceedingly great. Now, I want to come back to that third reason why Jesus was standing up. He, number one, he sympathizes. Number two, he's rising to welcome him home. But number three, the third reason given why Jesus is standing is because he's rising up as judge. He's rising up as judge against Stephen's persecutors. He's rising up as judge. So Kevin DeYoung in his sermon made some remarks about this. He thinks, DeYoung thinks, that there's a connection between this sight of Jesus at the right hand of God and why Stephen prays. He thinks there's a multiple connections there. One would be he sees him as judge and he doesn't want them to face Jesus as judge. He doesn't want them to face God without a mediator, so he prays for them because he knows how horrible it would be for them to face God without a mediator. That's one of the reasons why that he prays, according to DeYoung. But DeYoung also thinks that there's something about sort of the joys of what he's seen in this vision and why he prays. It's as if Stephen doesn't want them to miss out on the joys of Christianity. So here's what DeYoung says, perhaps one of the reasons why we do not do more to pray for our enemies is because we have not been captured by this gaze of the glory of God. I do not want even my worst enemies to miss out on this sight of your majesty and your beauty. We ourselves do not have any idea how unimaginably best Christianity is. If we were to see the glory, maybe we would pray for our enemies. I want them to know what I know and experience what I experience. My guess is that none of us pray for conversions like we ought to pray for conversions. And I would say there's probably some kind of deficiency here in our prayer life as to why we're not. So maybe it's because we haven't thought about the horrors of hell enough. And if we did, we'd pray more. But maybe we haven't thought about the joys of heaven enough. And if we did, maybe we would pray more. Here's the last thing I would say on this would be, if Stephen can pray for his enemies who are stoning him to death, how much more should we pray for our friends and family members, loved ones who 
don't know the Savior, if he can pray for those stoning him, how much more should we be praying for, for friends, loved ones, family members who don't know the Savior? Now, Mark already listed this list. I, I thought about listing the same names. He talked about these children at our church, 19 children, I think, that Mark said in our church. They don't know the Savior yet, but we should be regularly burdened to pray. And I mean, pray by name. We should write these names down somewhere, or at least have them on our prayer list somewhere, that we're just praying through these, their, their, their blessings from the Lord, but oh, praying, praying, praying that they'd come to know the Savior. I was watching an ordination service recently. A man who was 37 years old was ordained to pastoral ministry, and his father, who had been a longtime pastor, got up and, and gave the message, and then his pastoral mentor got up and, and spoke, and then another man got up, and they, they, they put their hands on this man, 37-year-old man. They prayed for him. They sang some, and then this man came up to talk. Now, this man happens to be one of John Piper's sons, who was just ordained into pastoral ministry, and uh, he's 37 years old, and he got up there, and the first thing he said, he, he said, I want to thank my parents. So he turned to his parents, John and Noel Piper, and he said, he was so thankful for them. He said the number one thing he was thankful for his parents were 37 years of them praying for him. He said, thank you for praying for me for 37 years. He said, those prayers have not gone unanswered. He said he was grateful for so many other things, but the number one thing was their prayers. And I just thought, how amazing would it be if the children at our church would rise up and would be converted one day? And they would, yes, they would say about their parents that they prayed for them. But what if they would say something like this? I am so thankful for North Avenue Church and the members of that church who prayed for me since I was a little girl, since I was a little boy. And I love that church because they cared about me so much and they prayed for me and they loved me well. Okay, the very end of the passage, verse 60, the very end, when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. We have sort of this peaceful way of describing this very violent death. And again, we go back to my, my third point was Stephen reminds us that we as Christians will see the risen Christ when we die and he will rise to welcome us home. One commentator said, no one ever died with greater assurance than Stephen. He dies with the vision of his risen Lord at God's right hand, still fresh on his mind. Stephen is now with Christ. Here's testimony of what happens after death for Christians is that our spirits go immediately into the presence of Jesus. Here's Stephen in full assurance of what death means for the Christian. It's sort of just, I was thinking about the martyrs throughout church history, and that just beautiful? When they die horrible deaths, being burned at the stake, and yet their souls do immediately go into the presence of Jesus, or they have been killed cutting their heads off, and their bodies fall limp, and yet their souls go immediately into the presence of Jesus. There are other martyrs dying in horrendous ways, their souls do immediately go into the presence of Jesus. So the six things, again, to quickly remind us. Number one, Stephen teaches us that we're going to have enemies in this life. We're going to have people who oppose our message. Number two, Stephen teaches us not to fixate on the trials in front of us. It. It's so tempting to fixate on them, but we must lift our gaze to heaven, to turn to the Word of God and the promises of God and the throne of grace. He reminds us that we as Christians will see the risen Christ when we die, and He will rise to welcome us home. He reminds us that we should regularly with the eyes of faith behold the glory of God in Jesus at the right hand of God. He teaches us that everyone must be prepared to die, and he shows us how to die well. The only way we'll die well is by resting on the finished work of Jesus, and he teaches us that we must love our enemies, and one of the ways we love our enemies is by praying for them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this account of the last few moments of Stephen's life. We're thankful for his example. I pray that we draw strength 
from his example. Father, help us to be like Stephen. Help us not to fixate on on the trials in front of us when they come into our lives. Help us to fix our gaze to, to heaven. Help us to turn to you and to your word and to the throne of grace. Father, thank you for the reminder that when we as Christians die, we're going to see Jesus, and he will rise to welcome us home. I pray that we would live in light of that day. We'd fix our mind on things above. And Father, he, we're thankful for the reminder that he, that he teaches us to behold Jesus regularly with the eyes of faith. So I pray that we would go with the eyes of faith and we'd think on Jesus at the right hand of God. And We're thankful for the reminder that every day is a gift. And we're thankful that uh, he teaches us that we should prepare to die, but we're thankful that he shows us how to die well. Father, and I pray if there's anyone listening in the sound of my voice, either online or here, that hasn't come to know you in a saving way, Father, I pray that even now, even today, that they would turn from sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus. And we do pray for, for the young children at our church, Father, we pray that they would come to know you in a saving way. At a young age, we pray they would grow up to love the church. We pray that they would use their gifts to serve you. And Father, we're thankful for the reminder that we will have enemies, but we must love our enemies, Father. And one of the ways we love them is by praying for them. So Father, I pray that we would just pray for conversions more than we do. Father, I pray that as we sing even now that we would sing joyfully. To you, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.